0: Heavenly Father, when we consider all of the works of your hands, the vast expanse of galaxies unexplored, down to the smallest atom, we stand amazed at your creativity, your power, and your majesty. How could we argue with your goodness so clearly displayed in creation? We are left with no choice but to praise you. We praise you for your holiness, there is none like you worthy to be trusted without condition or reservation. We praise you for your kindness. You are a good father, giving good gifts to your children. We praise you for your gentleness. Like a wise shepherd, you lead us to a better way and restore us to still waters and green pastures. Lord, like your prophet Isaiah, we confess that we are lost. We are a people of unclean lips, and we dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. We confess that we have sinned against you. We have made our dwelling in the world and sought peace and comfort in things that are not you and you alone. We repent and ask you to replace our sinful desires with a desire to be near you. We pray for soft hearts, that we would respond to your gospel in word and deed. All glory and honor are yours, Jesus, because you have atoned for our guilt and shame. Help us to walk in newness of life that only comes from you. Father, like children, we lack direction, we lack discipleship, we lack discipline. We crave the bread of life. Satisfy us in our deepest being with your word this week. We crave the community that you enjoy, Father, with your Son and your Holy Spirit. Satisfy us in our relationships with you and with your holy church this week. Our desire is to stay on the narrow path. Deal gently with us, Lord our souls are weary we pray Jesus for the influx of refugees from Afghanistan into our country and into other countries you have made it plain by your word that we must take care of the stranger among us just as we are strangers in a strange land give us opportunity to be your hands and feet in supporting those seeking refuge and safe haven Remind us, too, that we seek refuge and safe haven in you, Yahweh. Give us boldness to proclaim the truth of your gospel to all people at all times, that by our words and actions we might draw people to you. We pray for the local church, that you would steady us and keep us on the firm foundation of your word. We pray for the Well Church in Portland and Pastor C.J. Coffey. Ground him in your word, strengthen the leaders there to endure. We pray the same for the fellowship at Bend and Pastor Lauren Anderson. And we pray for a continued fruitful partnership with them as we minister generously to the church in Burkina Faso. Just as you have welcomed us in, may we also welcome in the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. Give us your heart for hospitality and love. And Father, we lift up all of the teachers, administrators, and students who are headed back to school this week. The uncertainty of this upcoming school year Is weighing heavily on us. For the teachers trying their best to teach our children, for Jordan, Nolan, Britannia, Lauren, Katie W, Katie K, Heidi, Sarah M, Rachel, Darcy, Jenna, Janna, Sarah R, Keegan, Karina, Sarah N, Ruth, Kirsten, Dinah, Kylene, Stacy, Maddie, Dave, myself, and any others I may have missed. Lord, it's a lot of us in this church. May you give us all grace and compassion and abounding trust in your goodness and mercy. And for all the students who are struggling with anxiety of many types, comfort them by your spirit. Remind them of your love for them in real tangible ways. Give Kelton, Britt, Colby, and Rachel wisdom as they minister to them this school year. Jesus, we rejoice in the atoning work of your blood on the cross that cleanses us from our sin and defeats our enemies. Give us joy this morning as we proclaim your resurrection together until your glorious return. Give us ears to hear your word. In the name of our King Jesus, we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Tyler. Can I have a seat? And you can open up to 1 Timothy 5. We're going to be continuing along, going chapter by chapter and verse by verse in the book of 1 Timothy. How many of you have ever gone to a fast food restaurant in order to return a library book? Anybody? How many of you have ever gone to the library to get a good cheeseburger? You probably haven't. Why? Because the mission and purpose of an establishment determine what its task and society's use of it should be. You would never go to a library seeking out a cheeseburger because you know a library is a place where the public can receive books on loan. You'd never go to uh, a cheeseburger restaurant trying to get a book on loan because that's not what they're there for. Now, in our day of big box stores, we are very confused, aren't we? You can go to Costco seeking lumber and a great hot dog. <laughs> We've started to develop a growing expectation that this idea no longer applies in every place, should be one-stop shopping for all of our needs. But the fact remains, an establishment's mission and purpose determine what its task and society's use of it should be. Now let's take the same idea and apply it to the establishment establishment called the local church. We live in the days of megachurches, which are indeed big box establishments. Kelly and I and uh, Patrick went down to a conference a few years ago at a church in California uh, where their baptismal uh, opens up out of a giant fountain outside that is the size of this building, right? Opens up, raises up. Has I think there's angels that come down from heaven and play. I mean, uh, pretty pretty amazing. A lot of these mega churches uh, provide motivational speeches, matchmaking services for singles. They have the best coffee. Maybe even restaurants on campus. They have lending libraries and bookstores, mental health services, travel agencies for religious related travel and tour. Food pantries, soup kitchens, clothing closets, community gardens, support groups, schools, children's daycare throughout the week, playground equipment, and on and on the list goes. Now, I want to be really clear. Other than using the pulpit for motivational speeches, I don't think any of those things are inherently bad, are they? But the question remains, are these things the mission, purpose, and task that Jesus established and Peter, Paul, and the apostles advanced as the church? You see, when we cloud the mission, purpose, and task of the church, we begin to cloud and most likely stray from the one true gospel and the great commission as well. Satan doesn't have to stop the mission of the church to make us ineffective. He simply needs to get us focused on a mission that is not actually the true mission. You guys may have heard the saying before, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Now, let's quickly recall what our mission, the mission of the church and, and the local church, is according to our Lord and Savior. This is from Matthew 28. We'll get to 1 Timothy in just a second. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You guys know this. It's the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In short, Jesus has victoriously been enthroned as king over the cosmos. His people are to go throughout the world and make disciples, literally translated as learners, learners of the triune God, followers and subjects of the triune God. And then to teach them to obey Christ's commands. Notice what a big part of it that is. Discipleship requires teaching to obey Christ's commands. And the obedience that we render is in response to his gracious salvation and ultimate authority. And the message that Christ's salvation and enthronement has occurred is the one true gospel that we are to proclaim. It is our primary mission. And part of that proclamation is to ask if someone has believed in this gospel and given their life over to Christ as king? And so I ask that question every Sunday, and I ask it again this Sunday. Have you given your life over to Christ as Savior, who saves you from your sins and forgiven you of them, and as Lord, king, highest authority in your life, to whom you obey without question? Are you in pursuit of obedience of his commands? Many of you who may have professed Christ, you may not be in pursuit of obedience of his commands. You may be relying upon the the salvation of Christ as fire insurance for when you die. So that's the second piece of it, is are you in pursuit of obedience to his commands? If not, if either of these questions, the answer is no, one of us as elders and pastors, we would love to talk with you about what it is to pursue Jesus as savior and king and what it is to obey his commands. That is our job as a church. That's what our goal as pastors and elders is for you. This great commission is the commission of the group of people known as the church. But this often gets lost as other quote-unquote missions creep in and supersede the core mission. In their book on biblical theology, uh, some of you may have grabbed it uh, outside uh, on the bookshelf we have books, Uh, not a bookstore, FYI, just books. Uh, It's the little purple book, the Nine Marks book by Rourke and Klein on biblical theology. And in that book, they discuss churches that have a different focus other than proclaiming the gospel, which can quickly take those churches off course. One such church is described in their book as the, quote-unquote, soup kitchen church. They summarize this church as one that has an accent of teaching that is, quote, more about mobilizing for what we should do for God than about the message of what God has done for us in Christ. It is about relieving suffering right where we are at, end quote. And they finish with this. They say, quote, when we feed the hungry and clothe the naked... We certainly want to hear the king answer on the day of judgment, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. But we also want to ensure that our churches don't just give away free soup. We're called to, uh, to freely give away something that is able to sustain and satisfy eternally. End quote. Friends, it is so easy to do this, to, quote, give away free soup, end quote. Because very few people on this planet will come to you and hate you for clothing someone who has no clothes or giving someone food who is hungry. At its base, it is not offensive, and that is is why even complete enemies of the cross will participate in these activities. But preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, and return that's offensive to the world. It's offensive to the same people who might be doing these acts of mercy. And so what happens is we convince ourselves that acts of mercy or benevolent care, which are in fact, as we'll see, implications and proper outworking of the gospel, we convince ourselves that these are the gospel, and they're not. They are not the gospel itself. And doing them does not fulfill our call to proclaim the gospel. They're not the gospel. If acts of mercy were just acts of mercy, just an implication of the gospel, and we all had that straight, then it is a true statement to say that every church should focus first on the gospel and then live out the implications of the gospel through acts of mercy. That's the proper ordering of it. But what the last hundred years has taught the church is that a focus on acts of mercy, above and beyond the proclamation of the gospel, or more broadly, what has been termed social justice churches, will eventually lead to a removal and dismissal of the core truths of the gospel and of the Bible as a whole. And so it becomes a very hard line that a true Bible-believing church has to walk, and as individual churches are believers in that church, because we have to balance the implication of the gospel that works itself out in acts of mercy while also keeping as our priority the call to evangelize and disciple the lost? How do we stay true to God's command to generously care for the vulnerable amongst us and others outside of our church that we're calling to convert, while also at the same time prioritizing the proclamation of the gospel itself? In our current day, this is a question every Bible-believing church has to answer. Well, I think Paul has some principles for us in our text today. This text that we have before us, it speaks specifically to this conundrum. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul will be instructing Timothy on how the church should take care of one of the main groups of the vulnerable within the church, widows. And this may seem like a very practical thing that he's giving, because at this point in the the letter, he's starting to give very practical directions and instructions about how we should behave in the church. And we might think, well, this is for a different time and a different place. It doesn't have anything for us. But friends, I think you will see that it actually gives us great underlying principles for us as we study what I've entitled today, Instructions on Benevolent Care for the Vulnerable in the Church instructions on benevolent care for the vulnerable in the church. And you might say, Hans, this isn't that big of a deal. We don't have the same issue with widows anymore. Why do we need to understand this? Well, friends, I'll say it again. A church that thinks that it's proclaiming the gospel and following its core mission by doing acts of mercy, acts of mercy are important, but when they supersede the gospel, slowly but surely what will happen is a church will be led away from focusing on the gospel And will slowly but surely twist its doctrine into the gospel of nice, not the true gospel of Jesus. And we'll talk about that and what I mean by that phrase in a little bit. But first, before we get to that, let's go ahead and take a look at chapter five and see right at the beginning in verse three, it says, honor widows. We won't go further than that. Honor widows. You see, throughout the Old Testament, one of the core characteristics of God that was presented was that he cares for the vulnerable. Do you realize that? Your God cares for the vulnerable. This massive God that can span the universe with his hand, and yet he cares for the least. He cares for the vulnerable. He is the provider. We heard it in our earlier reading from Psalm 146, and four classes of people are used throughout the Old Testament to represent all vulnerable people. Okay, you'll see this referred to throughout the Old Testament. There's widows, the fatherless or orphans, the poor, and the sojourner. Tyler even mentioned the sojourner in his prayer. The widows, the fatherless, the poor, and the sojourner. Now, you'll also th- see thrown into that mix Levitical priests, those who serve in the tabernacle. They were also thrown in once in a while because they were vulnerable in that they could not work or farm normally. So they were in need of the benevolent provision of the community they served. But these other four groups, they're the ones you hear referenced most often to discuss the vulnerable. And so in the New Testament, the church displays this same care to show God's character to the vulnerable, not as a command in order to gain salvation, but as an implication or an outworking of the gospel, an outworking of the gospel that they have been ushered into the kingdom of God by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They, therefore, lived out this implication, and so should we, of God's heart toward the vulnerable. We heard this in our reading from Acts 6, and their desire to care for the widow's well. When they weren't being cared for, the church adjusted to care for them. You see, they, in the first century church, like you and I, were previously vulnerable and oppressed because of sin in and around us. And Jesus redeemed us and freed us to adopt us as his own, to take us as his bride, and to make us part of his family. And this message required that his people would care for the fatherless orphans among them, the widows among them, the poor among them, and the sojourner that was among them. In doing this, in that care, the church became a peculiar people the family of God, the household of God. And these acts differentiated the church from the world around them at the time. But these acts of mercy can quickly be abused within the church or lead the church off course in its mission. And so this is where we have to be very critical in our thinking. And so because of the gospel, because we have been welcomed in, we were vulnerable, the Lord has saved us. But recognize the priority. What is the worst thing that oppresses us, that harms us, and that we are to be saved from? Sin, not our circumstances. Our circumstances are secondary. What the social justice gospel teaches is that the worst enemy is to save a person from their circumstances, and sin takes a back seat. That's why it's dangerous. And so in our text today, Paul will help us pull all these apart and unpack them, and he'll focus just on the widows, and I think what we can gain is some application out of some of the underlying principles, even for today. So let's read the text in whole, now that I've given you a little bit of Old Testament background, starting in chapter 5, verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation of good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, again, I think many of us might read this section and say, okay, I don't really have any application of this. Moving on to the next section. But we as a church do. Because remember, friends, remember when you talk about the church, if you talk about mission, remember that's talking about you. You. It's not some organization put together by the elders, it's you. When you criticize mission, you're criticizing you. (laughs) When you encourage mission, you're encouraging you. You are the church. And so this has important implications for us as the church. How do we care for those amongst us that are vulnerable? So the first thing that Paul provides is this, a clarifying definition of the vulnerable. A clarifying definition of the vulnerable. And he does so in verses 3 through 8 verses 3-8. through Paul opens with the phrase to honor widows who are, quote-unquote, truly widows. Inherent in the language of the word honor is the need to provide financially for their care. This is a command and one the church should not dismiss or overlook. In our effort to think critically, we don't ever want to dismiss that this is a command for God's true church. But then notice he says that you honor or care for those that are truly widows. This is such an important note that he repeats it at the end of our section as well, at the end of verse 16, those who are truly widows. So he starts with, honor widows who are truly widows, and he ends with, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. It's important to him. It implies that the historical situation to which it was speaking was that the local church at Ephesus was providing care for many claiming to be widows. Unfortunately, they should have been caring for some who were not being currently cared for, as in Acts 6, and they should have refused care to some for whom care was being provided. This was a situation that needed discernment. In other words, innate to the situation is the fact that Paul believes that not everyone who is asking for help should get help. Poof. <laughs> what? And often the very people who we are to help are the ones left forgotten because they are usually the ones who are quiet and not letting their needs be known. So Paul provides insight into what they can use to gain clarity with two simple identifiers. The first identifier is that these widows are truly alone that the vulnerable person is truly alone. They are truly exposed to potential harm with no one to help them. In other words, they have no other means of support or relationship of care from their family. Up until the very recent past, the last 40 years or so, the core unit of all society has been what is called the nuclear family, a mother, a father, and their offspring. Then when those offspring grow up, until the last 60 years or so, it was their job to care for their parents in their old age. Having children, lots of children, because of the rampant mortality rate early in life, was the standard retirement plan for all of humanity up until the last 60 years. Without an ongoing lineage, one's land would not be able to be farmed, trade would not be able to be done, and the elderly would die for lack of food and care. This is still the case in most of the world's population. In addition, women were especially vulnerable because all their inheritance rights and rights as a citizen were employed through a husband or a son. You can think of the story of Ruth uh, and her mother-in-law Naomi. Uh, Naomi loses uh, her husband and both sons and she and her two daughters-in-law are pictured as being without hope, becoming beggars gleaning in the field. And so, women who lost husbands and didn't have grown children, and also maybe had no father to return to, were completely vulnerable. They had no one to look out for them. And so, the implied historical context of the situation was that there were multi-generational families within the local church of Ephesus in which there were women who had lost their husbands, but they still had grown children and grandchildren who could take care of them. And yet, these self-proclaimed Christians weren't fulfilling their duty to care for the widowed mothers or grandmothers. And so, calling upon the idea of the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother by returning the care that the parents showed them and providing for them and raising them as children, they would do so by caring for the parents or grandparents in their old age. And this is the godliness that they were to show their own household. And notice that Paul uses that phrase in verse 4 there. He says, uh, to show godliness to their own household, to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. It's the same word, household, used in chapter 3, verse 15, that Paul uses to describe the local church. In other words, the household of the church is made up of the smaller subunits of godly Christian households within it. And we are family members in Christ, absolutely, but within that, we bear responsibility for care and discipleship first and foremost within our own families. This is why we tell you, men, you have to be the pastors of your own home. You have to lead your families in discipleship. If you're outsourcing that to our youth ministers, you are failing, period. We don't outsource to the church. We start with our own responsibility, and then we ask for assistance in it. And the fact that this was not being done was making the witness of the church look horrible in the eyes of the surrounding pagan world because Paul is implying even unbelievers take care of one another within their own families. And this is the reproach he is discussing and why he commands for it to be corrected in verses seven and eight. Command these things as well so they, they may be without reproach. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If God has one of, one of his core qualities as provider, when we, especially as men, are not providing for our relatives and our family, there's a problem. We're ruining the witness of God's character. It's core to Christian ethics that we take on responsibility, especially as men, to provide for our families and to look out for the welfare of our extended families. We don't shirk responsibility and place it on someone else's shoulders. We accept that responsibility and bear it to the glory of God. Friends, whether it be in our own home or in our own church or society, we need to ask ourselves the question of, are we finding reasons to ignore our call to care for the truly vulnerable? Are we justifying our lack of care and concern by pointing to the rampant abuse of mercy ministries, even as was going on in Ephesus? Well, people abuse it, so we're just not gonna do it whole hock. Is that the way that we're supposed to go about it? What Paul would say is no. Your first and primary command is to be generous in your care for the truly, truly vulnerable. If we answer this question with, yeah, I've pulled back and I don't do that, we need to repent and understand the implication of the gospel. We believe to care for the truly vulnerable is part of that gospel. It's a natural outworking of that gospel. To care for the unborn. To be pro-life is a natural outworking of the gospel. It's not a political issue. They're the most vulnerable amongst us. To care for the true widows, to care for the truly fatherless, they're vulnerable. It's part of the outworking of the the gospel. And when we provide care, we need to do so generously, right? We have a generous God who has given us life and salvation and every good gift, Amen? amen? And so to reflect him, we give generously. By the very fact that Paul is addressing the care of those that are truly vulnerable, we need to make sure that our heart is desirous to do the same, to help where help is truly needed. So the first defining characteristic of the true widow, the truly vulnerable, is that they are truly alone. No one else is there to provide care for them. But then the second one that he gives is that he says true widows have, quote, set their hope on God, alone. The widow evidences this through asking God in prayers night and day for provision and protection. And this is largely lost on us in America, modern day America, with our many financial and technological and medical conveniences. But in that day, and in much of the rest of the world, your only help when you are in need is your family and friend relationships. And so this true widow would be one who had no other means of care and was turning to the ultimate provider and sustainer for care. They have lost hope in any other means of provision other than a miraculous one. And so we see here a principle or a base definition that we need to use as we think through what are often referred to as the mercy ministries of the church. You can also know these by community outreach or charity or charitable actions. All these things mean the same thing, benevolent care. And we need to ask ourselves the question, are those we are helping truly vulnerable, are there other means for them, including family, that should be utilized first? If there are means of help that are available but are being ignored due to pride or hardness of heart, I would suggest those need to be addressed first before we ever provide benevolent care. Because benevolent care may enable that hardened heart rather than helping it. The local church at Ephesus was not doing that, and therefore, they were not stewarding their resources well. And Paul was trying to correct this idea. I'm guessing this was probably met with resistance. Try taking away a benevolent piece of care when it's given. Probably was met with resistance, and poor Timothy had to implement it. Well, to provide you with even more help in navigating this emotional and tough topic, Paul also then provides Timothy with qualifications for enrollment in benevolent care of the church. And we see this in verses 9 through 10. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. I said there are two obvious qualifications that defined the true widow, and that is true, but there was a third that's implied. It's not explicitly stated, but it's implied. And that is that these widows were considered a part of the local church at Ephesus. In other words, they were considered members of the body. Notice that this is the priority. It is not to the complete exclusion of doing good to all people. The Bible says to do that, or what we might call community outreach, but it is definitely not the priority he is looking at. Friends, if you read through and study the whole canon of scripture, the people of Israel and the church, their priority was care within their body. Community outreach is really not found anywhere in scripture as we have defined it in the modern day church. Does that mean we shouldn't do it? No, not at all. It has to be in the proper priority. And notice this priority. It is not to the exclusion of doing good to all people, but he is focusing on care for those in the church. And this is important because what Paul discusses next is the qualifications for enrollment. But enrollment in what, we might say? That might be the question. If they were already part of the church, the household of God, why did they have to be enrolled in something else? Why was there this additional step? Well, if you look at church history, there was a time in the early church where this text before us was interpreted to be defining a special order of widows in the church who took a vow of celibacy and were basically given responsibility to care for the church. This was happening a few hundred years into the church. It was almost like a special elite unit of deacons right, the Navy SEALs of the deacons. Now, there may have been some connection even to the tradition of nuns in the Catholic Church, uh, but there are a few things that lead us to the conclusion this is not what was all intended. I want to give that to you because it is out there as part of church history. First, Paul just got done telling us in chapter 4 that leaders, church leaders who forbid marriage, are speaking a false doctrine. That's in chapter 4, right? Right? It says in chapter 4, verse 2, through this insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving, okay? And so he just got done saying those who forbid marriage are actually speaking a false ascetic doctrine. Secondly, just a few verses later, Paul, uh, here in our text today, will call on younger widows to marry, to go ahead and marry. And thirdly, rather than seeing the list in verse 10 of qualifications as things expected of the widow to do as part of this special elite unit, they are the things the widow has already been doing, and one of them is to be the faithful wife of one husband. Now, these are all things that they're supposed to do. They're simple past tense verbs. In other words, they've already been done. And so the enrollment is not for a special job or role in the church, it's caring for those who are already very much part of the church. Hopefully that makes sense. The plain reading here of what they're to be enrolled in is that these widows were being added to a special list in the local church of ongoing financial support or what we would call ongoing benevolence. The early church was ordered in a way where there were one-time gifts to people in need, but then there were also those who would receive regular distribution of foods or funds, such as outlined in our earlier reading from Acts chapter 6. You can see this if you ever go over to Burkina Faso with me. There are churches that have uh, one gathering. It's really cool. They put the bucket out front. Uh, All of you introverts would be out of luck because you have to dance up, and then you put your money in, and you dance back to your seat and sit down, and then they do the widow's collection, and you dance up, and you give some more money for the widow's, and then you go and dance and sit down. I think we should do that here. What do you think? Ryan, Tyler, should we start doing that? Yeah? No? Tyler's the most introverted amongst us, and so he says no. Right? And so this was part of what they would do. They would do ongoing benevolence for the the widows in the church. The church was responsible for them, in essence, in an ongoing way. Since they didn't have a provider for them, the church would be that provider. But not just anyone could be enrolled. They had to qualify. Again, in our current day church, what? They had to qualify. Now, this might be odd, possibly even offensive to our modern sensibilities. All that is necessary for someone to get material provision through welfare in our society is for them to raise their hand and say they want it. But friends, before you think I'm going down a track of political commentary here, please realize that this is an inherently biblical issue and an issue of discipleship. The Bible's worldview does not make room for benevolent provision or what we might be terming welfare in our day, doesn't make room for it without qualification. For example, Paul said quite clearly that the Christian church was not to provide handouts. Would you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians really quick? Go back to the left to 2 Thessalonians. It should only be like a page or so. Maybe not even that in your Bible. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And Paul is going to be talking about this context of himself working, even though he could have, based upon Old Testament tradition, asked people for for provision for himself as a minister of the gospel. He chose not to do that in order so that nobody could accuse him of it. And he, he basically says, so I worked hard amongst you. And hey, that's what Christians are supposed to do. So take a look at 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6. He says, now we command you brothers... That's that word command. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's the authority, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right But to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I'm waiting to walk into the soup kitchen that has that above the place where they hand out soup. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Friends, the Bible clearly does not make room for the people of God to dismiss and ignore the truly vulnerable, but commands that they be cared for. So this is not trying to get out of that. Because at the same time, the Bible also presents a worldview that does not make room for handouts and mercy ministries to anyone who asks for it. Our worldview must conform to the Bible, not the other way around. And to do this, friends, to do it this way, is the difficult path. To say, no more handouts, people have abused it, that's easy. Then you just ignore everybody. To say, let's give help to everyone who asks, that's easy. Why? Because everybody will love you for it. To say we need to be discerning because our ultimate goal is not the soup or what have you. Our ultimate goal is the salvation of the soul behind the person. That's the hard way, the difficult path. And so back in 1 Timothy, even though Timothy was probably going to Face backlash as he corrected the distribution of benevolence, Paul gives him the qualifications of someone to be enrolled as a recipient of ongoing benevolent provision. First, they have the qualifier of age, and we'll get further into that in the next section in a moment. But in short, Paul will point out that if this widow has other options, such as remarriage and is young enough to do so, she should do it. And this goes back to the question of whether or not she is truly alone. But then secondly, the qualifier of godliness or godly obedience is presented. All the remaining items are meant to provide a picture of the godly widow who has been faithful in her service to Christ and his church over the years prior to becoming a widow. And let's look at each of these. First, the wife of one husband. She's to be faithful in the covenant of marriage. A reputation of good works. Good works throughout the New Testament is idiomatic or a saying that means walking out the works of obedience to Christ's command. It doesn't define good as you would have it. It defines good as God would have it. This is not just the, as the bumper sticker says, random acts of kindness, but that this person is always pointing to Christ as ultimate authority by the way they live life. Third, brought up children. In other words, brought up children in the Lord. She's done her best to disciple her children in obedience to Christ. Fourth, she's shown hospitality by inviting strangers in as guests and providing care. Fifth, she's washed the feet of the saints. This is another idiom or saying that she showed consummate care and served her brothers and sisters within the household of faith. This person was not a consumer of the ministries of the church, but a participant in them. Sixth, she cared for the afflicted. When others were suffering hardship, this person was the first to be there to weep with them and to provide help as needed. And seventh, Finalizing again in a summary statement devoted to every good work shows that it wasn't just a portion of their life, but they were devoted, immersed in following Christ in every way. In other words, for a widow to be enrolled in ongoing benevolent financial care in the church, there must be evidence of true conversion in the gospel that led to repentant and consistent action that could be seen. This is a qualifier, it would seem. And without these qualifiers, it would seem, Paul was warning against enrolling them. And he covers that next as he gives us this last section, a caution for wisdom in application. A caution for wisdom in application. To provide benevolent care for someone who does not match the qualifications we just covered can lead to a place of enablement that is bad for the person and for the church. And so Paul gives warning Be discerning in how you apply benevolent care. In other words, look at verse 11, guys. This is is not my word, this is Paul's. Refuse to enroll. He gives warning. Be discerning in how you apply benevolent care. Refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. Not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them, and let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Man, this is a feel-good passage, isn't it? No, this is instructing in how to obey in the household of God. The situation at Ephesus was that there were younger women who were widowed, who had been enrolled in this ongoing situation of care. But then, Paul communicates, some of them were growing increasingly desirous of marriage, possibly even, Paul indicates, because of sexual desire. They would then be pulled into any relationship, regardless of whether or not it pointed them towards Christ, because their idol, it seems, was to be married and have companionship. And this superseded their desire to serve Christ and the church. Paul states clearly that when this became obvious, it was like they were abandoning their former faith. They had, in essence, used the church for benevolent care when it was convenient. But then when a husband came along and became available, they threw off the need for the church community to pursue the husband instead. They also showed the opposite in contrast to the true widows in their desire to work hard in serving the Lord and his people. The true widow showed a life of godliness and service, but the false widow that was manipulating the church for their own benefit were using the uh, benevolence provided to enable a lazy and destructive lifestyle. Rather than serving, they were going from house to house gossiping and sowing division amongst the body. And so Paul states clearly that he would have that what he would have them do instead. Because they are younger and have the chance of remarriage, he commands that they remarry, bear children, serve their households. This would keep them busy at work through service and would limit their ability to be used by the enemy to cause issues or sow division in the church. Some, it seems from verse 15, had already deserted the church for the arms of a husband in idolatry. It could have been the case that some of these women were aligning and possibly engaged in illicit behavior, even with some of the false leaders mentioned earlier in the book uh, in the the church of Ephesus. Paul uses similar language in 2 Timothy, which he wrote to Timothy at Ephesus, where he says, for among, uh, among folks who are sinning in the church are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions." So there was something going on in the church. We can't put our finger on exactly what, but there was something going on with these younger widows and, and uh, possibly even the false leaders. And so Paul ends this section cautioning Timothy to have wisdom and application by reinforcing that if someone has another means of support, they should take it. And if someone in the church has the ability to care for those that are vulnerable in their own family, they should do it. And all of this is to give the church the ability to care for those who are truly in need. So here's how we handle benevolence in this church in an attempt to follow the wisdom of the principles contained within Paul's words to Timothy. First of all, we give to those who truly need it. I want to encourage you guys. Do you guys know that you as a church just sent over $10,000 to Burkina Faso to provide primarily for food in one of the worst famines they've had in years? That's a good thing. We do that out of the abundance given to us, not because we're special or more holy, it's because for some reason, at this point in time, we seem to have issues of provision that we can use to provide. We do so because God is the ultimate provider. So we give to those that are truly vulnerable. In the United States, sometimes it's hard to find those that are truly vulnerable. And so when you go to a third world country that is one of the poorest countries on earth, you know that you're dealing with the truly vulnerable who are acting in godliness. So that's one of the first things that we do with our benevolence funds. But then what we do is we encourage people in this church to look to family for help. And then various assistance programs that are available. We all pay taxes, and in this society, the government assists with some of that stuff. And so we encourage people to make use of those programs. It's what our tax dollars go to. If those are not available, we encourage the deacons in the person's community group to provide help through getting uh, some money together from the group to provide groceries and so on. If that doesn't meet the need, then we will talk with the person and most likely have them fill out a form that gives us an understanding of their financial situation and helps us in providing pastoral care. Then, and only then, will we provide help from the church's pooled benevolence fund. To do it this way may seem unloving to some, but it is meant ultimately for the person's good. And prioritization of benevolence always goes towards members first. And we will rarely, if ever, hand out benevolence to an unknown person who asks, because our experience has shown us that it is poor stewardship that ends with little fruit prior to having these principles in place, this church handed out a lot of money. In over 90% of the cases, the person who received the benevolence was gone within two months. It was poor stewardship on our part. And so this is how we do benevolence. Now one might question this and say that approaching it this way is unloving or it isn't kind. But I would suggest to you, dear friends, that this is not based on biblical precedent, but on a false gospel of nice. At the core of this false gospel is the ultimate goal of being nice to everyone. If it had a bumper sticker, it would be the one I quoted earlier that says, practice random acts of kindness. This is the church that has gone mad with the social justice gospel to the exclusion of the true gospel. It is a gospel that has, at its core, making others feel good and avoiding discomfort at any cost. That is the reigning gospel, especially in the Pacific Northwest. To tell someone, as Paul did, that they are not qualified to receive benevolence would go against the gospel of nice. That's why it's so offensive to so many. Have you maybe bought into this gospel of nice? where the unforgivable sin is to cause discomfort in another person's life? If so, recognize you are following a false gospel that does not have Jesus at its core. Now, to be clear, kindness is absolutely a fruit of the Spirit. But the Spirit is one who ultimately produces that kindness out of allegiance to Christ's reign in the believer's life. And so kindness is always done ultimately with a goal of pointing the person you are helping to allegiance in Christ and to have an understanding of God's character. It's not being nice just for the sake of being nice. The God of the Bible is absolutely kind. That's why he's attractive. But he's also attractive because he is just and exists in truth. Jesus himself indicated that Christians would be hated by the world for pronouncing truth and requiring obedience to Christ. And so when we aim to be nice, outside of the goal of pointing to God's ultimate glory, outside of his commands, we can potentially be acting against his work in someone's life. Let me explain what I mean. And I know some of you may not like this, but at the core of all suffering is sin. Can we agree on that? Sin is the overflow of rebellion against God in all cases. Some of that suffering just exists, like toil, disease, and death. Other suffering exists because of sin committed against us. So if you've been abused or harmed, that was not your fault. God is completely against that sin and stands on your behalf wanting to fight against that abuse. But then there is other suffering that exists, Because of choices in our lives where we have made choices in rebellion against God. We have made choices that do not submit to his rule. And I would argue that this is more of the case than we care to admit. Now, please hear me. This doesn't mean that if you are going through suffering, it is your fault. Some suffering just is. Some suffering is caused against us. But a great deal of suffering, oftentimes in financial circumstances, it's done because of poor choices, not in submission to Christ. When this is the case, dear friends, the natural ramifications of that sin should lead to a place of suffering. And this is a natural order that should cause people to turn to God in repentance and need. When you have no other choice, who do you turn to? Christ. Christ. And so, when we rush in too quickly to offer reassurance or assistance, we can possibly be numbing the very difficulty that God intends by His providence to point them to their need for Christ. And that doesn't mean that we should disappear or abandon the person, but it does mean that we need to be more discerning in putting salve on their wound too quickly. Let me give you a very practical example outside of finances. How often have you seen it where we as Christians, someone will come to us and say, oh man, I did this sin against you, and we are so quick to forgive, because we should be, that we very quickly say, don't worry about it. How many times have you done that? When it's actually caused a lot of deep wounding and hurting, maybe even outside of that relationship, and maybe God wants the person to sit in some conviction longer than just quickly glancing past it. When we are too quick to put salve on a wound that God is working to truly purify, maybe we're actually hitting the symptom and not the underlying disease. We need to instead look at the whole picture and try and fight against the real underlying issues. Imagine a doctor that only ever treated symptoms but never dealt with the underlying disease. It's possible that we can do the same when we want to put a quick Band-Aid on someone suffering through Mercy Ministries without getting to the underlying root issues. And that is why Paul is focusing on the practical care of financial benevolence or food. If we are not careful when someone comes to us for benevolence, we might be enabling poor stewardship of finances or refusal to bear responsibility just to make the person feel better in the moment. And friends, it is not fun as elders when someone approaches us and says, I need help. And we say, okay, let's talk about what's going on in your life. Well, I just need help. Just give me help. Why won't you help me? Uh, because we want to help you. And just giving you what you need in this moment may not actually help you. Now, this should not lead to hesitation just for hesitation's sake. Instead, it should cause us to be purposeful because we want to make sure there is a true need and that helping them will drive them towards Christ, not away from him. And then if there is a true need seen, We need to respond quickly and in abundance, generously, in the name of Christ. Paul's goal was to help Timothy implement these changes in the church of Ephesus so that the church was behaving in a manner that was in line with the order of Christ and his rule, not going against it. And so, friends, as we finish today, I want to ask you, as you look to the church, What do you believe is the church's core mission? Is it to be nice? Is it to do nice things? Is that its primary mission? Or is it the household of God in which we care for one another as an outworking of God's salvation and care for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or have you determined maybe that it's something else entirely? a place that is intended to be primarily the center of community outreach and social justice, and the preaching of a gospel that is not the true gospel. If the gospel is secondary, then it's not the gospel at all. If that is the case, you need to adjust your worldview and priority of mission for what the Bible says the church is to be. That is what Paul was doing in Ephesus adjusting the care ministry so that it enabled godliness and a witness of God's true character rather than distract from it. And so this morning, as we consider Paul's instruction on benevolent care for the vulnerable in the church, may the church have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to it, and may it inform our care for one another, our care for the community around us, and the priority of preaching and living out the gospel and its implication in our midst. Amen? Amen. Amen.